25 minutes each. So. Okay. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. We're talking about publishers and things you never wanted to know. Just kidding. Actually, we're not going to be doing that. We've got some amazing guests. We're going to talk to two great authors. And uh, let's do some reverse introductions. But before that, I'm Ray with Constellation Research. Got my amazing co-host, Fala, and our awesome producer, Elle. Uh, but more importantly, we're going to talk to our two guests. So we're going to reverse order. James, tell us where you're coming in from and what are we talking about today? Well, I'm in an English country pub in the middle of the English countryside. And of course, it's 7 p.m. here. So I feel very different from my dear friends and colleagues in sunnier climes. But hey, it's the fall. So uh, we're getting kind of snug. Um, I'm chief executive of an independent media group. We're based in London, New York, and Los Angeles. We produce programs of every possible genre from Netflix to, to Discovery and Snapchat. Um, and we distribute all over the world. Um, and I've just written a book called The Flexible Method, which uh, has been published by Ashette in Boston and London. And it actually hit the number one spot on Amazon and Amazon UK, which I'm very pleased about. And I'm really keen to have a dialogue about how we can make our businesses across all uh, sectors more flexible and more agile so that we can survive this world of permacrisis that we now live in. Yeah, no, I definitely am too. But I thought we we're going to talk about bar food, chicken tikka marsala, and fish and chips in English countryside pubs. But darn! Right, you know, you know, that. Chicken oh, that's marsala. Is, that's what I was told. How do I get chicken tikka marsala is the number one favorite food of the UK right now. So hey, I heard. I heard. Multi I saw that. I saw the multicultural. That's what we love, right? Multicultural. Well, hey, I got the, the best shows. chicken tikka marsala. I got the best chicken tikka marsala recipe. But if I told you, Ray, I'd have to, you know. <laughs> I'll see you in Miami for our puzzle. Uh, let's see. Hey, Dr. G, welcome. Where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? I am live from Miami. Great to see you guys again. I also have a new book called Dead Wrong about healthcare's myths and disinformation illness. I am the former chief medical officer of Salesforce, which I was at when we last spoke. So thanks so much for, for having me back. Well, hey, very cool. We're really excited to have you both here and there's a lot to talk about. Back to you, Elle. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter, X, at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray and myself and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research 
He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I see Ray on TV every day. He's on Bloomberg. He's on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, everybody. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Bala Asher, the chief digital evangelist of Salesforce. He's also the author of this new book, Boundless, a new mindset for unlimited business success, which is available now and can be ordered on Amazon. But more importantly, executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce or externally in Spain, which we'll talk about in one day, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But it's not about us. It's about our amazing co-host, amazing guests. And of course, who do we have to bring back today? One of our favorite guests is back, Dr. Gita Nair, Dr. G. Nationally recognized leader in health IT and author of a new best-selling book that came out this week on the 17th, and it's already a number one new release on Amazon. Dead, dead number one new release. Dead wrong, diagnosing and treating healthcare's misinformation illness. Dr. G is the former chief medical officer at Salesforce and AT&T. In each of her roles, she worked to curb misinformation at the intersection of healthcare and technology. Dr. G is a rheumatologist and nationally recognized leader in health IT, bridging the divide between clinical medicine, business, and digital health. As a board member of the American Telemedicine Association and University of Miami Miller School of Medicine Alumni Association, Dr. G helped steer decision-making at some of the nation's most influential medical organizations. Her work and expertise have earned her appearances on CNN. I never forget you and Dr. Fauci going toe-to-toe <laughs> on CNN. I'm like, yeah, that's Dr. G. <laughs> and PBS, and she's regularly featured on CNBC and Yahoo Finance. Dr. G is author of a new book, Dead Wrong, Diagnosing and Treating Healthcare's Misinformation Illness, which d- did release this week. Uh, and uh, it has rich stories and insights derived from uh, the boardroom. Dr. G uh, makes the case that building trust and health literacy at scale requires healthcare leaders to take responsibility for the problems and their solutions. You can follow Dr. G on Twitter at Dr. G Nair, N-A-Y-Y-A-R. Welcome back, Dr. G, to Disrupt. Thank you so much. It is wonderful to see you guys. Man, you guys got a lot of energy for a Friday. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like whatever, whatever caffeine you got, you need to some of that. Uh, two, three cups of coffee. Dr. Yeah, it's contagious. With yeah, yeah. It's contagious. Yeah. All of the water here from the JW Marriott. I'll take it. Congratulations on the book. And it's, it's never easy Thanks. writing a book. We're just talking about this in the, in the background. Um, what what drove you to write about this? Because you know, don't we have truth in today's you know healthcare system? Don't we have amazing amounts of like great quality information? Like, why, why are we writing about this? How could I be dead wrong? Well, there's lots of ways, and we do. We have a lot of truths and a lot of mistruths in, in different parts. So, look, I am a doctor that went through training at the height of the HIV/AIDS epidemic, so early 2000s in DC, and literally every other patient I had was dying. And this is pretty frustrating and futile for a young physician who's really there to save lives. And when COVID-19 happened, I remember having this flashback to the HIV AIDS epidemic, where we, again, saw people senselessly dying from preventable illness. And so that's really what inspired the book. And that's how the book kicks off. It actually takes a look back in history 
at how the HIV AIDS epidemic had so many parallels to COVID. And really shocker is that misinformation and disinformation have been with us since the beginning of time. So not a new issue, just new technology making it faster and easier to spread. I've never been on such a door handle again. <laughs> <laughs> I well, you. actually, you don't need to be afraid of door handles. You just need to wash your hands very long. There you go. There you go. Like, oh, that helps too. <laughs> I saw you in action for several years um, as we were trying to battle through COVID, serving as chief medical officer at Salesforce. You shaped the roadmap of our company. Uh, you shaped uh, how we addressed uh, your advisory board, working with our founder, CEO, and head of HR practice, trying to figure out how we get 75,000, 80,000 people back to work safely. Um, you helped shape the framework on our events and event planning. As you know, we're a company that has a heritage of hundreds, thousands of events annually. And we immediately shut down March 9th, 2020. And then we would knock on your door and say, Dr. G, when do we open back up? When do we open back up? <laughs> and uh, those were some incredibly, um, you know, you were a trailblazer because there was no precedence for what we were trying to figure out. We were really inventing the rule book uh, with stakeholder health in mind. It Was that the key driver? Because I know as you were guiding our most senior executives in terms of how we should create this hybrid work environment, hybrid event environment. Um, you had to serve as a filter for us with all of the information that was coming from external entities and some were accurate in nature and some were not. Can you share the experience of guiding a large enterprise through COVID and why is the book as important now as it was you know, in 2020, 21 and early 22? You bet. Well, first of all, some of my proudest time was at Salesforce. So I, I really appreciate that. I, I really do think we led with integrity and science first. And look, also an impetus for the book, being in charge of 80,000 employees. What One of the things I learned is that employer health during a pandemic is public health, right? Essentially, in the U.S., employer health is public health. And, and guess what? The last mile of public health is communication we developed a groundbreaking, extraordinary, innovative vaccine, mRNA vaccine in nine months. And then we spent the rest of the pandemic, including now in 2024, trying to convince people to get vaccinated, to save their own life or save a family member's life or a neighbor's mm -hmm. life. So that's really the crux of the book is to say, look, how do we acknowledge that the undercurrent in healthcare is this myth and disinformation ripple? And then how do we use technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence, CRM, social media, for good, not for evil, right? Because the reality is 59 million Americans turn to social media influencers for their healthcare decisions. That's a lot. Wow. Right. And in the absence of a doctor, in the absence of finding an expert, in the absence of accountability for the information in those in those worlds, people die. People do not feel trust in the health system and people are being sold five hundred dollar vitamins, three hundred dollar supplements for things that are often not necessary when a fifty dollar copay to go see your doctor is likely a better bet. And so that's really the reality of, of healthcare today. So why now? I, I think why not now? Uh, this gap is going to continue to widen. And this issue, you know, one day it's HIV AIDS, one day it's fertility, one day it's cancer. This is an ever-present chronic issue. 
and it's time healthcare address it head on. I mean, let me let me read something from your book that was that was kind of interesting about misinformation that you kind of talked about. Uh, you talked about left-leaning New Age influencers took militant stances against COVID-19 vaccines, while you know veteran right-wing conspiracy theorists injected new anti-mass sentiments into the old tropes of sinister cabals that secretly run the world, and they actually do. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but the point being was, I mean, there was misinformation, disinformation. People ended up believing what they wanted to believe. How do we get back to fact-based, science-based? And the whole public health apparatus was apparently and feels like apparently it was compromised. So, so can we win back that public trust? I think we absolutely can. First of all, are you available for any voiceovers in the future for the book? Because you have to I'll take it. <laughs> I gotta put my Johns Hopkins MPH to use somewhere. You know? <laughs> um, but look, there's a couple of things. So, so number one, we got to have consumers that are more savvy. There are things consumers can do to be smart. Nobody wakes up in the morning and say, hey, how can I be the victim of myths and disinformation? People are largely thirsty for healthcare information and knowledge because they, they want to be healthy. So no one's looking to get duped. So number one, making consumers smarter about how they look at the source of what they're looking at. How do they validate it? How do they have a doctor to help them make a personalized choice? And are you selling something? That's a big indicator of whether your content is something I should be looking at. So simple facts, consumers have to take responsibility. Number two, healthcare, right? For some reason, we thought marketing and communications was cute. We never really appreciated it as a priority in medicine. In the absence of a digital footprint for a provider, provider system, or doctors, in the absence of chief medical officers, surgeon generals, and every zip code, misfits fill the gap. And guess who's responsible at the end of the day? At the end of every miss and disinformation train is a doctor leading you in the emergency room to clean it up. So when we look at contributors of burnout, the pandemic continues to be one of them. So this is an issue and it needs to be a priority. So marketing, clinical, IT, they all gotta work together, whether it's at a life sciences company, whether it's at a enterprise uh, provider group, or whether it's the, the public health departments, right? This has to now become main stage and we have to look at technology as a tool and an asset, just like marketing and communications. And then lastly, regulation. So look, social media companies right now are largely self-regulated. There, we are reaching a place now, particularly as artificial intelligence is now, now in a place of maturity where we have to look at this and we have to understand, is there a policy component here? Do we need to start regulating these things? And are there also professional um, repercussions should you be one of these misfits with a medical license and nursing license out there propagating disinformation. And lastly, we have an election coming up. We have a presidential candidate who is a known anti-vaxxer. So we have to also hold our government elected leaders accountable and we should be interested in the way that they are thinking about healthcare and the future of public health as we continue to struggle with a healthcare system that is broken. And Ray, I know you know this, your wife is a doc, right? So you understand this firsthand in many, many ways. Yeah, I do. I'm pro so I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned AI and uh, certainly there's been a monsoon of interest and in, uh, with, with the launch of, uh, or awareness of open AI's generative AI last October, and we saw in less than two months, 100 million users. I found my 13-year-old, without us ever discussing generative AI, using ChatGPT for his geometry homework. And uh, I was super proud for 10 seconds and then really scared, like, what else is he using this? 
he's not writing essays for his English class. Um, but I, I, I was still proud. Um, but it, it was an eye-opening uh, experience for me because, you know, when people ask me what's the next big thing, for me, the next big thing is based on adoption. Uh, to to tackle the misinformation Ill, illness in healthcare, and is there opportunities where we can leverage technologies to actually deliver accurate content faster? Absolutely. So, so first of all, in healthcare, artificial intelligence broadly should really be focused right now on today's problems, which are around administrative burden, continued burnout by poor uh, poor. EHRs, poor technology, and this whole concept of documentation first, clinical care second. So I think there's some low-hanging fruit for AI to help us solve documentation, to help us solve administrative burdens like prior authorization, and absolutely clinical decision support at the bedside, make me smarter, better, faster mm -hmm. as a doc, and, and help me complement my clinical decision making. Now, I don't think AI is replacing the doctor or the nurse anytime soon. I don't think the consumer is coming to see R2D2 to deliver their baby. So when I see some of those futuristic uh, things, I think they're very aspirational, but likely not in our lifetime. I think we need to use AI to unburden and make our bring back the joy of medicine for doctors, nurses, and the whole care team. With regards to this and disinformation, it's really up to us as an industry because AI could really propagate Myths and disinformation much faster and much smarter, or we can harness this technology, make it a priority partner, chief medical officer, chief marketing officer, CIO, and say, hey, how do we use this again for good, not for evil, right? We could just as well put together very, very intelligent campaigns uh, targeting populations that most need it and also offering care because that's one of the big things right now. If you try to get an appointment with a primary care doctor, Good luck, depending where you are in the country, it could take three to six months. So again, with that gap comes the opportunity for misfits. So to the extent AI helps us close those gaps in care, close those access issues, this all leads to better decisions and better and more factual evidence-based medicine and better outcomes. Some great stuff that's happening, especially when we think about uh, the implications in public health and uh, what happens uh, going forward. What trends are you looking at? What are you worried about uh, as we think about health issues and uh, things that are coming up in the next generation? I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I've, I've been noticing, and, and it's a scary thing, and I've also confirmed this through multiple sources, like bartenders <laughs> and <laughs> and youth. Very, uh, very accurate sources. <laughs> very, very accurate misinformation and disinformation. Uh, no, but but kids and the youth are not drinking as much as they were before, but they're turning to recreational drugs. And and I've I've gone to enough conferences in the last probably twenty events where professionals like lawyers or consultants or business folks are not drinking it, yet they are using recreational drugs uh, instead. And we're, we're seeing an epidemic there. But the question is like, uh, I mean, is that a trend that you follow? Are, are things like that? Like, because we don't see the public health outreach to, to combat those things like we used to. Uh, so take something like that. Like, what else are you saying? Like, I mean, obesity is still here, right? Chronic issue that's actually popping up, right? But we also see allergens, right? People are allergic to more things than they were before. And people are wondering what personalized medicine is going to look like in the, in the future, right? So, so what trends like this are you following? And what are misinformation, disinformation trends uh, that you're combating? So, Well, look, again, I, I think no one's waking up in the morning trying to be unhealthy, Right. So we went from worrying about tobacco to now realizing, well, vaping kind of the same thing, right? Kind of the same damage to the lungs. So, you know, marketers, businesses will continue to put wrappers around things, but poison is po poison. 
right? Yeah. Recreational drugs, alcohol, these are poisons. So it is very important to be number one, a savvy consumer, understand that when anyone is ever selling you something, right? It comes with a piece of information and a buy here now. So it is important to understand that. And it's important to understand where those incentives are, right? Social media personalities out there are always willing to give you a skin regimen. I have found that, right, Ray? And Ozempic is one thing, but but skin regimen oh, from- T-Zone's getting we have to a me. Right. TV, we have a Disrupt TV cream that we want to- Don't tell me about that. We're launching that next week. So I think you have to be mindful of that, right? Because very rarely is your doctor selling you something. So, so understanding who is selling you what, what is the incentive in, in it for them if they are propagating information and validate, validate, validate. The source matters, right? If the Cleveland Clinic says that Disrupt TV's eye cream is the best eye cream because of X product, I'm going to check it out. Okay. But until then, until then, I'm going to stick with watching the program and maybe leaving the eye cream to like Neutrogena, you know? So, I'm waiting for that endorsement. It's, it's funny, you, Dr. G, it's funny you say that. We've had this show for eight years. Uh, we've had numerous companies that want to be sponsors of our show. And we just say no, uh, because the tone and sentiment is, we, our purpose is to educate and inspire. But you're right. As soon as there's some sort of, uh, you know, monetization element to it, you do write in a book, uh, or, or it's been said about the book, obviously clinicians, public health leaders, health tech leaders, uh, health marketeers, all these folks can benefit from Dead Wrong. But also you can find the book in the libraries of media professionals and community leaders. I know you had a very active role as a CMO working with our CM chief marketing officer and the comms team and the you know, IR, AR teams, analyst relations, investor relations. So you work hand in glove with folks responsible to communicate our narrative and message. What can uh, PR leaders or, or uh, media leaders learn from Dead Wrong to put into practice? So I love that question because we have to remember that every day in healthcare is a crisis. You just have to walk into any emergency room to understand that. So while everyone's excited we're in a post-pandemic world right now, we are still in a crisis of everyday healthcare in America. And it's time we work together the only time marketing, the only time chief marketing officers, chief information officers, and chief medical officers worked together was the pandemic, because it was viewed as a crisis of, hey, I only know marketing, I only know clinical, and I only know tech. So how do we help each other open the office, close the office, communicate what to do to our customers, to our employees? We have to keep that mindset today, because we are still in a crisis. And it is a mistake to expect our doctors to be marketers, and our marketers to be doctors, and our tech folks to understand patient care, and marketing, you have to actually use all of the C-suite. And the metrics are the same, right? Marketing might be in charge of brand loyalty, clinical is in charge of patient acquisition retention, and tech is involved in administrative burden, IT tech choices that affect patient care. It's the same metrics. Those are all the same metrics, different names, different labels. So very important that there is an acknowledgement of prioritization and that that undercurrent remains. Healthcare as a services business, people have questions, they're coming to experts for answers, no different than your accountant, your lawyer. So the currency is actually information. And how you monetize that, how you scale that is the business of a hospital, a life sciences company, a payer. Um, and, I, and I think there's one more piece. I want to answer Ray's question about the, this whole issue around obesity, ozempic, sort of all these things we're saying. You know, I think that's a much bigger question, and it's a, it's a public health question, because for whatever reason in the U.S., you all travel a lot, I, I do as well, we have this mentality of there is a pill for that, 
and more is more. And the reality in health is that less is often more. And prevention is always better than an intervention. And unfortunately, our culture, this fee-for-service culture, has propagated some of this, right? And the reality is the apple is always better than a vitamin supplement. An orange is always better than vitamin C, like an actual orange, like I live in Miami. And I'm asked this all the time. I take this vitamin and it's like 50 bucks from Whole Foods and I'm like, you got an orange? It's like 50 cents. Go get an orange, right? Same thing. So we have to change that mentality, but that is very much a cultural piece. And the public health piece, that last mile, again, we developed the best vaccine across the world in nine months, and then we couldn't convince anyone to take it. Public health is communication. It is trust. And that has to be just as much as a priority as the actual therapeutic, as the actual medicine. Great advice. Great it's amazing. So we are here with Dr. Kitanair, nationally recognized leader in health IT, author of Dead Wrong. It's three days old on Amazon. And of course, catch up with her. Number one new release. Number one new Dr. release. Thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday. Congratulations, Dr. G. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And Ray, you got a job. You got a job as the audible uh, voiceover. <laughs> Just let me know. Hit me back. He, he missed his All calling. Right. He really did. <laughs> Right. You, 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 do have a, you do have a great voice. You do have a great voice That's and great, great hair and great hair, but it's audible. So it's voice. Okay. Well, we only have amazing authors that come on our show and there's no exception here. James Barstall, CEO of Ag Agonon. And Argonon. Argonon. And author of Flexible Method, Preparing to Prosper in the Next global crisis. James is a CEO of Argonon, an award-winning, world-leading independent television production company. Argonon creates over 160, Ray, 160, over 160 world-class shows and productions every year, winning over 125 awards, including Emmys, BAFTA, Royal Television Society Awards, and more. Argonon comp comprises of several world-class labels, bringing together, together exceptional creative talent from around the world and committed to fostering a true spirit of independence and diversity both on and off screen. I believe there's eight companies uh, under the Argonon umbrella. By adopting the flexible method, Argonon emerged from COVID-19 with only a single figure fall in revenue and an increase in head, an increase in headcount uh, in an industry which was devastated, as we all know. James uh, studied at Stanford Graduate School and regularly speaks about flexible method and adaptability and resiliency at the said business school. You can follow James on Twitter at, wow, he must have been an early adopter. <laughs> it's his name. <laughs> at James, B-U-R-S-T-A-L-L. -L. I couldn't get Vala. So welcome, James, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. As you can see, I'm in this rather spooky uh, English pub. Uh, we're shooting a drama here, and I think Hercule Poirot just came into the room next door. So if there's any sort of spirit, apparently it's haunted. It's 15th century. <laughs> That's amazing. Over 160 production, 125 awards, including Emmys and BAFTA. Congratulations. That's, that's, that's an amazing achievement. Well, as you know, it so takes a lot of work. He actually, as, as we we're talking about this, introduce us to the, the company, really. What, what's the backstory of Argonon, Argono, and, and how do you pronounce it properly so that we got it down? Yeah. Argonon. Yeah. Argonon. 
Um, we, were, we were also um, not quite so early adopters, but I knew when, we, when I set up the group in 2011 that we must have a one word dot com. And we scoured the planet for one word dot com. So the only ones that were left were w76321.com. Everything else had been bought. <laughs> no. So we did, we, did find, we did find Argonon and you guys with your scientific background, you'll know it's the collective noun for the helium gases, which are infinite and limitless. So we as a creative business, we got excited about that and thought, you know what? It's also good to have a lot of zeros in a, in a startup, right? So uh, we like the fact that Argonon had uh, several zeros uh, .com uh, in it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I started out as a journalist. I've worked um, in the US and the UK for many years. I worked initially for Condé Nast, for um, Anna Wintour and Tina Brown and Harold Evans at, at uh, uh, Vanity Fair and Vogue and uh, Condé Nast Traveller. I worked between New York and Paris. Um, and then I worked in newspapers and then I got into TV. Um, and I'm a generalist, actually. I love making the whole range of programs from documentaries to investigations. We broke the Epstein story uh, to uh, reality. We've got a big show called House Hunters International. It's on every night, you probably know, um, on HGTV. Uh, we've got a big show on discovery about engineering uh, called um, Mysteries of the Abandoned. We've got a comedy show with wonderful A-list talent, Catherine Tate, on Netflix called Hard Sell. Just a quick warning, it's pretty rude, but it's very, very funny. It's great, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and a whole host of other things. So um, we are we are based, as I said, we're he headquartered in London, uh, but we uh, have uh, busy hubs in New York and Los Angeles. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 do, I do love our industry. It's very exciting. It's constantly changing, constantly evolving. We have to be just basically permanently of a disruptive mindset. Uh, and the reason uh, I think that the publishers I shared decided to pick up my book was that, yeah, one, we did, we and my group did come through pretty robust uh, through COVID. And it, and we didn't actually start with Flexible Method in COVID. We started in the credit crunch. And the book talks about many crises and that actually interviews leaders from many different industries. But actually, the independent production sector, which I'm sure you know, employs thousands and thousands and thousands of people around the planet. And we are major revenue drivers, 5% of GVA in the US, 9% of GVA in the UK, 9 million people work in the creative sector, and that's not including digital in the US. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's an industry which is used to pivoting. It's used to thinking on the, on the hoof. When something doesn't work, we think, okay, right, well, we're going to have to drop that, be agile, and come up with something different. And actually, bigger companies could really, uh, uh, would, it would behove them, I think, to adopt more of a, a disruptive, flexible, agile mindset into their culture, because the world is constantly changing right now. You can't rely on anything. Uh, and, and it is um, uh, good, good business people, because we have bills to pay and we want to keep uh, pushing the envelope. Uh, we will always be restless. And restlessness is a key part of success in business. Mm. James, tell us about your first book. First of all, it's an honor to have such an accomplished media expert. Perhaps you can guide Ray and I in terms of how we can disrupt Disrupt TV. We could use your expertise. But tell us about Flexible Method. Tell us what was your motivation for writing it. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with the world with this book because you, you thrive during COVID. So you clearly have uh, an incredible formula that business leaders can benefit from. Yeah, I yeah, wrote the book to be purposeful. I did write the book to be purposeful. I wanted it to be a document that would be there and available for 
colleagues and friends and the next generation. Because I know that when we went into COVID in March 2020, there was a sense that, oh my goodness, we have never been here before. What the hell do we do? And there was a lot of fear. You know, I felt frightened. And um, we didn't, you know, we were told in the production sector that there would be no production for 12 months. Uh, and wow. if there's no production, if there's no production, you have no income, you have no business, you cannot pay your bills, you can't put food on the table to feed your kids. You know, it was an existential threat and it was very frightening. So what, what do you do when you're confronted with something like that? When you take a deep breath and you go through a number of steps and I, and I put them into 16, very clear, very uh, concise, not easy lessons, not easy steps to take. It is not easy, the flexible method, but they do work. And actually the first thing that you must do is you must put your people first. Uh, business is not a profit and loss. Of course, we are in the in, in business to make money. But actually, the first priority is our people. We would not have a business without our people. And what we did, of course, we moved very early. We moved long before the lockdowns in the UK and the US. We got our people home. We moved 1,500 logins off-site and online in 48 hours. We had invested in teams early, thank goodness. I've got a brilliant IT guy who said to me, James, years ago, you've got to invest in this stuff. You never know what's going to happen. And we did. So we moved a lot of people very early. And the first thing we did is we made sure they were in their homes, that their elderly parents were okay, that the kids were safe, they were frightened, of course, that they had food on the table, food in the fridge. And then we started investigating what kind of communications have people got? Have they got decent Wi-Fi? And if they haven't, what can we do to help them? And then I started daily communication with my team. You know, the, the production sector in TV and film is very young. There's a lot of people in their teens and 20s, many of whom live in rented accommodation, far away from their homes, perhaps all over across the planet. So just by simply starting a, a communication, not just me, you know, I'm the chief exec, so I absolutely felt that responsibility, but also sure, the team sure. working through the ranks. We started daily communication saying, you know what? We don't have all the answers. It's a, it, is a, it is a worrying time for everybody, but we've got your back and you can trust the senior management team that one, we're here for you and you can talk to any of us anytime. Two, we are listening very carefully to what governments around the world are saying and recommending, both from a, um, a business perspective and an operations perspective, but also a medical uh, perspective. And we said to people, first priority is make sure you're healthy. Sure. And boosterism has no uh, no role to play. I mean, in the UK, we had a government that was telling us that basically there were no uh, problems and that this thing was minor, it would go away quickly. Uh, there were similar problems elsewhere on the planet. We didn't feel that was appropriate. It's inauthentic. It's a lie. We did not have all the answers. We knew that this was a dangerous time and that uh, um, it was only by little by little by gathering information, initially mm. hour by hour, that we were going to start to come up with solutions. And then what happened is that we thought, well, we can't possibly stay out of work for 12 months. That's just not going to happen. We're going to be dead. So we talked to the BBC and Discovery and many of these other major uh, international clients we were working for and said, you know what? We've got a big scripted drama um, about a magical scarecrow. We could shoot that entirely outside. We also produced a big show called The Masked Singer. It's a big uh, entertainment show in a yeah. studio with huge A-list celebrities. Awesome. <laughs> we couldn't get, we could not get those celebrities um, into a place where they were going to get sick and die. You know, I mean, God forbid. We had a huge duty of care to those guys, but we could create a studio that was basically an empty bubble. So we came up with COVID protocols that were as long as your arm. I mean, I can't begin to tell you. 
wow. there were a thousand different points, including the one that might entertain you, is we had to take all of the handles off the, the restroom doors. So nobody was touching the same handle. There you go. <laughs> there was no, no sharing of handles. Oh, my God. <laughs> but also people had to go into little mini bubbles, within bubbles, within bubbles, and you had to bring food in that was, you know, specially protected under plastic. And every time you did a take and you, you used a car in an action sequence, you'd have to stop down after one take, sanitize everything, wow. reset, and go again. I mean, it was wow. unbelievable hard work. But it was possible. And you know what? We were the first out of the gate with a giant scripted drama with a major international hit, which is The Masked Singer. And nobody got sick. No one got sick. And we were able to share that information. I do think COVID actually was an incredibly collaborative time. People sure. reached out. And when you reached out to other people, they were there for you. I do think that it is quite remarkable how the world really stepped up. And that is one of the great things I think that has come out of COVID. We've demonstrated when things get really tough and you reach out for help, that's a sign of strength. It's not a weakness. And there are people out there who want to help you. It must have been, you must have had a people first core values and ethos pre-pandemic. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. the first step of putting people first is super difficult if you don't have a CEO that gives a shit about his people uh, or her people. So uh, the Argonon culture must have been people first to begin with. Am I correct in saying that? Because Absolutely. I can't imagine. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, from your experience in Silicon Valley, one of the reasons I went to the grad school at, um, uh, at Stanford was that, that, that there is this incredibly importance put on culture. And there's some fantastic Harvard Business Review reports about how actually if you create a positive culture where people feel supported and valued, they will work really hard for you. And actually, not only will they be happier and want to stick around longer and, you know, there's great value in a sustainable workforce who are feeling good. It also goes straight down to your bottom line. You make more money. It's pretty simple. So, yeah, it is. It's, that's kind of who I am. I mean, I, I have worked for monster bosses. In fact, that was my first commission when I first set up my production company. I sold a show uh, called Monstrous Bosses and How to Be One to the BBC, and it got us off the ground. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not a monster boss. I, I'm not perfect, of course. We can tell. We can, we, can tell like we, we can tell you deeply care about these methods. It, 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 we, can, we can sense it. Go ahead, go ahead, Ray. I really, I really like how you talk about how to get through um, some of the things around when disaster strikes. And, and I think the part where you talk about lead with calm purpose uh, and gather your generals, uh, that, that's important. But sometimes you don't know who the generals are. And, and sometimes it's not apparent when you're in the middle of that. So how do you find those people in your emergency team and how do they rise to the occasion or how do you prepare them so that they have a chance to rise to the equation? Listen, I'm a creative and I became a businessman. So I do understand the creative process and I understand creative competition. I can get jealous sometimes if someone does better than me. I'm sorry, I'm a creative. That's the, where I come from. That is normal. And actually very early on, I remember being a little bit jealous when it was my first company called Leopard that I set up in 2001. And we had a hit show and my name wasn't the first name on the final credits. <laughs> and my partner said to me, James, you're just being jealous. You know, give this poor guy a break. He's worked really hard. And you know what? It's your company name, Leopard Films, as the final page at the end of the show. So, you know, that's still your company and it makes you look good. And actually that for me was a really important learning curve, a learning process, because 
of course I want great people around me to do great work and in fact do better than me because it's going to make the business grow it's going to challenge me we talked earlier in the conversation about constantly learning you know I'm good at certain things but I'm also hopeless at other things and I'm you know mediocre at quite a lot so I need great people around me who will basically push me higher so actually I did run my own company um as a bit of a, a lone wolf you know when you run your first independent that it tends to be the model and then about 10 years after that um, I decided to create a group which would be attracting really amazingly powerful peers around a table with me in very different genres. So I do come more from documentary and entertainment. And I decided to bring people in from science and engineering and indeed astronomy and fiction, fiction drama. And it was at that point that I hired people who are or indeed we acquired businesses where which were run by incredibly strong generals. And you know what is the first defining feature of these people, which is so important, um, is that they are they are not yes people. And as a leader, you have to surround yourself <laughs> with people who will tell you the truth. And sometimes that's stuff you don't want to hear. And definitely in the beginning of COVID and indeed ongoing, there's stuff that happens in the world or in our business that I'm not happy about or makes me feel sad or it's uncomfortable. Or it requires tough decisions. But actually, in the middle of a crisis, we set up a, a group called the Cobra Team, which is what the British government set up every time there is a giant global crisis. And they, they put a small number of people in it from operations, legal, maybe communications, HR. Um, and these will be people who have very strong opinions, who really know their stuff and will speak the truth. And by setting up that Cobra Team, which is made up of these people from my group, who said to me, James, you know what, this is really brutal. We could go under here, but we're not going to. And here's my idea, here's my idea, here's my idea. And I thought about them all carefully. We discussed them. I went away. I always go away and think about it. I took a night many times to think about this stuff. And many of it, many of their thoughts I would take on. Not all. Some of them I didn't, but many I did. Um, and it made us a stronger team. Um, I will say as well that my particular organisation, we are an independent group. And I had made sure that all of my senior players, and there are about 20 of them, UK and US, they all have skin in the game. They all have stock. So these people are my business partners, truly. They have stock in the group. So therefore, therefore they are vested in the future success of the organization. So they don't want us to go belly up. They don't want us to run into problems. They want us to be successful and strong. So they will speak the truth and they'll fight the fight and they'll roll up their sleeves and do all the extra hours that founders will do. And I do think that that stock ownership is a very, very important part of business. And sometimes larger organizations miss that piece. And I know that the people in my group who are the most successful are those people at the top of the tree who are entrepreneurial in spirit, incredibly creative and multi-award winning A-listers. And they have skin in the game. They're literally my business partners. I love that. I was trying to think about, as you were speaking, what a delicious paradox. You're talking about a flexible method with folks who are maybe not so flexible because they have such rich domain expertise, they're not yes men or women, and yet because they're not renting their time with you, they actually have equity and skin in the game, it works. You have a flexible method even though you have hardcore domain experts that are not afraid to speak their mind because in my experience, people are not afraid of failure, they're afraid of blame. So if you have a safe environment where you can say no to something and then present evidence without negative consequences, you know, pissing off the CEO, 
that's when you really have an amazing team because you respect and you care and you trust each other. But I think you you solved the puzzle in my head. They have skin in the game. They have yeah. equity. They're not renting yeah. their time. They want to yeah. ensure shared success broadly for all of our Argonon. So that's that that's amazing. Now, that's, how do you get this? How do you get the creative juices going when it is unprecedented work during crisis where you have to remove doorknobs, you have to scrub 10 times before every take? How do you maintain that creativity and flow of you know, insights when you're in such a constrained environment? You, 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 have, to, you have to build that um, startup mentality into your culture. You have to be constantly changing, constantly evolving. I think it's important actually to have a team of people that is a blend of sustainable long-term people with whom you can forge a shorthand and who are with you for the long journey and also fresh blood. And when new people arrive, they will challenge you and again say, look, in my last place, I was doing X or Y or Z. What about it? And you think, well, actually, that's an interesting idea. I never thought of that. Why don't we try it? So you do have to build that flexible mindset into the world. And that does require as well constantly actually reviewing. And I have to say that these crises go back to the credit crunch in 2008-9. It was an amazing opportunity to feel pain. My goodness, we all felt pain and we've got our war wounds. But also to look deep. Look deep. We used it as an opportunity to do open heart surgery on the business. You know, where are we strong? Where are we we weak? Where have we got too many uh, people? Where are we spending too much money? I mean, I talk about it in the book, where have we got too many staples and, um, you know, post-it notes knocking around the building, spending thousands on all this stationary equipment that we frankly don't need. You know, you do discover uh, on a regular basis that little bits of fat grow on the land. So you have to keep co- constantly re- revisiting. And I will say that, you know, this this world of permacrisis we're now in, it does offer that opportunity. It's not nice. It can be difficult, but it does force us to look deep. I will just say one other thing about the um, the flexibility piece that is absolutely critical. And it's a, it's a core paradox at the heart of the flexible method. Yes, there is this sense of agility and open-mindedness and willingness to pivot, but it has to be also combined with absolute fierce resolve. When you make a decision as a team about what you're going to do, you pursue it with fierce determination to the end. You, are, you show at that point real guts and real metal and you do not stop until you're done. So those two things go hand in hand and it is a paradox. Hey, before we talk and, and about... It's hard, and it's hard, it's hard, mm-hmm. it's hard to do. And I, I just can't imagine a CEO like yourself with such great success producing over 160 shows and events, winning all these awards, still maintaining a beginner's mindset. So there's mm-hmm. got to be some great element of humility where fresh blood, who may be half your age, comes into a room and challenges your vision while you've had great success and still you're willing to listen and possibly even pivot. There are not many CEOs that can do that. So, you know, I hope... Father, if, we don't, Father, if we don't change, we die. We rest yes, on our laurels at our peril. We rest on our laurels at our peril. There are brilliant... 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds creating incredible stuff in their bedroom right now. We want to be part of that action. I want to learn from those guys. Awesome. awesome. And James, hey, before we get to, uh, you know, set your future course or rest, reward, and review, I have to ask this question. And I started to know who you were um, from 
I believe it was Man Caves. <laughs> but, you know, oh, yeah. do you have these said. favorite series, Man Caves, House Hunters International, Dear Genevieve, or Cash in the Celebrity Attic? Right. <laughs> well, what makes you smile when you think about those things? So, I think what I'm really proud of is that we do do a whole range of programs, as you've guessed, which are some of them are lifestyle and some of them are really, really hard hitting. Um, and I've got a very strong social conscience and I do have a very strong diversity and inclusion strategy at the core of our business and also climate change at the core of our business. We've got to, we've got to act, right? So um, there is a combination. And what I will say is a show like Cash in the Attic or House Hunters International, they are amazingly um, life affirming for millions of people around the world. They're appointment to view for millions of people around the world. And in our little way, Every night when it comes on, I know because I get a lot of mail. People sit down or they get into bed with their partner and they get a moment to imagine or drift off or dream or uh, uh, fantasize about how things might be in a different world. And that's really important because time out is just as important as time in. So I'm proud of that. And I'm also proud of the fact that sometimes we make shows like when we broke the Epstein story or we've got some really big hitting investigations that we're doing with the New York Times coming down the track and we... No, you know, do a little thing to change a piece of the world. That matters to me as well. To do either one or the other. One, I wouldn't have a business. You've got to do both. And two, I need to do both because I just think that I think we're serving the audience then with a broad offer. And I'm a broadcaster. I take that responsibility seriously. That's but you're amazing. always setting your future course, right? You come out of the crisis, you set the next one, and then you go back to rest, reward, and review. I mean that. Yeah. that that can be tiring for a lot of folks, right? How, how do you build yeah, that culture to someone? So, well, I think um, it, you know I, I've done a lot of study, and actually I do lecture as well at the University of Oxford at the business school. And one of the things I find so impressive about that particular business school is there is this very three hundred and sixty holistic approach to leadership. You know, we're only human. Some of us are very good at what we do, and we have many strengths, but we are only human. And the stakes now of any business are so high. You know, there's huge amounts, there's millions and millions of dollars at stake. There's people's livelihoods. We're doing work that could disrupt, as you'll show, the world for the future forever. So, you know, we have to be mindful about that. And that requires also we as individuals taking real responsibility for ourselves, our mental health. That's going to impact not only who we are, but our teams, but also our partners, our children, our families, our friends. We have a responsibility to be upstanding and healthy. And that means you can't always be 100% 24-7. It's just not possible. That is not humanly possible. So I talk in the book, I've got two chapters, one about your team's mental health and one about your own mental health. And both are very, very important. We are only human and we have to look after ourselves. Good leaders will be healthy and strong and fit and then be able to do their best work. That's great advice. James, 20 years ago, if I had met myself, I would have said, stop renting your time and work for a CEO that's willing to have you uh, share equity in the company. I worked for more than a decade for a private equity run business and I had no equity. It was... I had a healthy salary and bonus, but I was really renting my time during the prime of my career. What would you tell a 20 year old James if you had a chance to give him advice? And, and because we have a lot of young entrepreneurs and startup founders that watch Disrupt TV, and I'm sure the wisdom that you would share with the younger version of yourself would be greatly important and significant for them as well. 
Yeah. Um, well, I love running my own business. And I, I, I set up my own business when I was 35. Uh, and that was the right age for me. Um, what I needed through my 20s and my early 30s was... Um, <laughs> It's a little bit, a, a little bit like, but like AI. I'm actually enrolled at the moment at MIT doing a course on AI and strategy. Um, I needed to gather data. So I, I was a journalist. I worked for some incredible people. I mentioned that at the beginning. I worked for about ten different production companies. I worked for some giants like Discovery and the BBC. Um, I also um, did all the different jobs from producing to field producing to directing to editing working across all the genres, entertainment, drama, documentary, investigations. Um, and then I went for, to work for two companies, one of whom were huge uh, in the US and, and selling a lot of shows with a lot of intellectual property into the American marketplace. So I built a significant network of contacts. And so much of our business is about relationships. You know, when people are, are giving out commissions for many millions of dollars, you've got to have a relationship and that relationship has to be one of trust. So that takes time. So there I was in my early 30s, building that network of relationships and trust of people who buy programs. So I needed 15 years to gather all that data, if you like. Then when I hit 33, I worked for one company. And at the end of that year, I said, listen, I'm doing a great job selling shows. I'd sold several million dollars worth of programs in the first year. Give me a stake in your business. And they said, oh, no, not yet. Maybe in a two or three years time. And I said, well, I'll be 40 by then. I've already demonstrated I can do it. I will leave if you won't. And I left. Wow. Then I went to the next company and pretty much the same thing happened with a few iterations. But basically, I got to the end of that second year. Again, this time I'd sold two or three million dollars worth of business in my first year. And I said, listen, I can I've demonstrated Give me some points in your company. Oh, no, no, no. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Wait a year or two. I thought, I can't do this a third time. <laughs> I cannot do it a third time. <laughs> so um, that time I then went out to a, a bigger production company, a big in the US and the UK. And I said, will you give me a few dollars to set up a startup? And I got a great lawyer to work it out for me, which actually basically said if I could pay them off within two years, I could go completely independent. So get a great lawyer was the best. <laughs> <Get investment>. a <laughs> and a great IT person. It's all about the people. That's awesome. That's awesome. Here well, with James Burstall, CEO of Argon, an author of The Flexible Method. Prepare to prosper in the next global crisis. You can follow him at his name, James Burstow. But more importantly, get the book. The book is out there, and I believe it came out this July. So congratulations. So. Fantastic. Yeah, not one spot on Amazon, UK and US. Fantastic. No surprise. No surprise. Thank you, sir, for your Amazing. shared wisdom. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Thanks time. for being on the show. Happy Thank Friday. You. Cheers. Hope to meet you. Wow. <laughs> Two great authors, two great books. What can you ask for? <laughs> you know, uh, well, you know, Dr. G is amazing. Again, intersection of technology and healthcare and a practicing physician. So feet on the street, understands all the key trends in terms of how to have a, a successful outcome with patients. And James, what an amazing, great. It's eight companies, eight or nine companies under the Argonon umbrella. They're producing, again, nearly 200 shows and, and, and events and, uh, and I mean, Emmy awards, BAFTA awards. I mean, he's, his, his company is amazing. He's amazing. So wrap up. Uh, hey, the dude, show I watch Hunters International every night, dude. Okay. <laughs> it's on. It's like, it's well, my background. It's, 
I'm like if Joe and Patty the- leave the Midwest and go to Florida, right? that's like the domestic version. But the real one is like, hey, Joe and Patty are hanging out in Paris, trying out an adventure. We and need, you're like, cool. We need, you know, it's like, we need to we need to have James uh, consult us on how we step up our game at Disrupt. I know. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we got we got to get a world class. Three hundred forty uh, episodes in. You know, yeah. We got to figure out how to get into the right business shows. Maybe we're not hitting the right lifestyle angles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Have to Let's go read the book and find out lesson. <laughs> That's right. Oh, 100%. 100%. Well, we don't have a show next week. We have this um, one of the top technology industry analyst summits in one of the most beautiful places on earth. I don't know. Uh, Half Moon Bay is hosting this event. Ray, are you, uh, are you familiar with this event next week? <laughs> I've heard about it. You know, it's uh, yeah. you know, well, 180 it's CXOs get together for an executive retreat, you know, and day one is all about innovation. And day two is about like best practices and day three is about leadership. And so I don't it's know. I hope to see folks it's, there. <laughs> uh, past 10 years, it's been one of my favorite events to go to. I've made lifelong friendships, business relationships. It's the Constellation Connect Enterprise. Follow on X, I'll live stream many of the keynote speakers and sessions as much as I can, but, you know, tune in to hashtag CCE 2023. Is that correct? CCE 2023. Uh, Because you're going to see just enormous amount of content. And there's a visualization expert that captures each keynote and each panel discussion in a beautiful drawing. Every session is captured through amazing drawings. So if you follow the hashtag, you're going to get the essence of what we're discussing. And you're also going to get live streams of the major keynotes. So it starts the 24th, 25th, 26th next week. And for that reason, we don't have a show. Because by the time Constellation Connected Enterprise is complete, uh, you know, my, 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 my wheels are spinning. So Ray may be able to do a show after CCE. I can't. So anyway, what well, we, we will come we back. We did it one year. Boy, but, but November boy, 3rd, we're kicking off. So Boy, are we coming back with a bang. Uh, we have Thomas Curian, CEO at Google Cloud, is our first guest. We have Larry Chinsky, Vice President of Global IAM Strategy at One Identity. We have Bill Halston, author of oh, Battlefield wow. Cyber, How China and Russia are Undermining Our Democracy and National Security. And Michael G. McLaughlin, Principal Government, Relations Co-Chair Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Practice Group. So definitely get your popcorn, buckle up, because when we do come back on November 3rd, we have four extraordinary guests lead, led by Thomas Corian, who's CEO at Google Cloud. Ray, closing comments uh, on, uh, on hey. our show. No, I think we, we can really get amazing guests thanks to viewers like you. And uh, please keep sending your suggestions. And of course, send it to us either at Disrupt TV or to our direct message or even publicly suggest some guests uh, to our X and Twitter handles. So that's it. And uh, look forward to seeing everybody live, uh, some of our friends at CCE. Happy Friday. Thanks, everyone. See you in two weeks. Oh!